a series in Daniel, but I looked at Daniel 2 this week and thought, no, no, no. Uh, Not with uh, too many meetings, too much going on. Uh, So I thought I would preach on a parable that's actually, in the words of J.C. Ryle, takes uh, more to believe simply what these words say than understand what they say. In other words, It's not as complex as other parables. Many parables are complex, but this one is not. And so it is one that I uh, want to look at. I'm going to be looking at some parables in certain evening sermons in the coming months as well. So part of a longer series on parables. And so we will be in Matthew 13, verse 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask now for the faith required to hear these words, to apply them appropriately, and to know that not only is the Spirit present, but Christ and the Father are present here as we worship you. Amen. One of the striking things about parables is uh, that they are both forms of judgment and salvation. And the longer you um, see these sermons preached, I think it will become abundantly clear. Many people who are not so well-versed, maybe new Christians or whatever the case may be, really think of parables as extended sort of sermon illustrations, but they are far deeper than that. They are usually uh, forms of judgment as well as hopes of salvation. And in the case that we have before us, Matthew Henry speaks of parables, and I really enjoyed the way that he describes a parable because he said a parable is like the pillar of cloud and fire. So think of the pillar of cloud and fire in the Old Testament regarding Israel and the Egyptians. It turns a dark side towards the Egyptians, which confounds them, but a light side towards the Israelites, which comforts them. And so parables will often have a dual focus, just like the parable of the two sons. There's the two groups present the Pharisees and the scribes, as well as the tax collectors and sinners. And there is hope for the one group, but judgment on the other. And as you see parables, they begin in Matthew 13. If you go right to the beginning of the chapter with a quote from Isaiah 6, whereby Isaiah is commissioned to go and preach to God's people a message of judgment. That's his uh, ordination sermon. Go and preach judgment so that they will be seeing but never perceiving hearing but never understanding. And in this parable, we have those two sides of the coin. Now, in the case of the Presbyterian church to which uh, many of us belong and to which I was 
uh, speaking in South Africa, I made this point that one of our great features that is a reason I am a Presbyterian is because we believe that the gates of heaven and the gates of the church should be as wide as each other. And what I mean by that is if somebody is a Christian, they should not be barred from being a member in our church. There are certain denominations, certain traditions, whereby they believe that you have to hold to certain specific doctrines to be a member in that church. It can happen across the board. I'm not singing any one denomination out unnecessarily. There are some whereby you even have to hold to uh, key confessions. Otherwise, you can't be a member in the church. You could go through the doors and sit there, but you can't be a member. There are others where you have to be baptized in a certain way. You have to have been fully covered in water, not partially covered in water. Otherwise, you cannot be a member in the church. There are some where you have to have a certain eschatology. And if you don't hold to that eschatology, you can't be a member. And they may even say, we believe you're a Christian. You just can't be a Christian in this church. Our church believes that you should be admitted to the church if you are a Christian. Because if God welcomes you into the heavenly places where there are angels and glorified saints, how can you not be welcomed into the visible church? So, the point that I'm making is that we have a very generous, I would say, and biblical idea of what constitutes the visible church based upon a credible profession of faith. And so, we don't go and spend six months uh, monitoring your household with cameras and, you know, taking you to the doctor for a checkup and this and that and saying, okay, now we're really, really sure you're a Christian. It's a credible profession of faith. And so I say that in relation to this parable because I don't want you to think that I'm going to be unnecessarily scaring you when I say the following. The kingdom of heaven is roughly synonymous and it is synonymous with the kingdom of God. They're just different terms used in the New Testament. It is roughly synonymous with the visible church. This is not a distinction between good and bad people in the world per se. So you look down upon the world and there's people who are pagans, who murder and rob old ladies, and then there's the good people in the church. And so the kingdom of heaven is the world. No, the kingdom of heaven is actually the people of God, the visible people of God on earth. And the only way to make sense of this parable is to hold to that view. It is not the kingdom of heaven in heaven, so to speak. Otherwise, you could not make sense of this parable. It is the kingdom of heaven in terms of God's rule on earth. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the church, lots of different ways we can frame it. Now, with that said, I want you to notice then the exposition. It's a very simple analogy. Jesus is speaking to people who understand fishing. He is speaking to people in ways that they're going to understand precisely what he's saying. And if you were to ask me, where did Jesus get his teaching from? As I've said before, and I will say again, Jesus received his teaching from two principal places. The Old Testament scriptures, which he memorized and applied and interpreted 
and the worlds that he himself, according to his divine nature, created. He created this world, and then he takes the world that he created, and he uses illustrations from the world that he created to teach people. The man who built his house on rock versus the man who built his house on sand. Consider the lilies. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And here, he likens the kingdom of God to a net that catches fish. Things that people can understand. Not big words, not complicated words. Everyday examples and yet deeply profound examples. So, notice the previous parables have spoken of acquiring a valuable thing. We even see this in Luke chapter 15, where the sheep is acquired, and there's rejoicing over the one sheep that was lost, and then there's the coin over the ten coins, one is lost, and it's found, and there's rejoicing, and then the son who was lost and is found. Here, the parable has in mind a host of valuable things versus non-valuable things, and those things are fishes. So the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. There are roughly 20 to 30 species at the time of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And most of those fish could have been eaten. There is a Levitical rule that only fish with fins and scales could be eaten. It's in Leviticus 9. Uh, if you want to look at that. But eels and catfish, for example, were not allowed to be eaten, and that's because they have a snake-like appearance. And if I remember correctly, snakes don't uh, give off the best impression as you begin to read the Bible. So here you have a net, and it's weighed down, but it's also with corks kept up. And the net is catching a whole host of fish, it's not uh, with the aim of specific fishing. It's not like you see a nice salmon and you say, I only want salmon. And you throw the spear in, you get the salmon, you come home and say, look at this salmon. No, it's a net that catches many, many types of fish. The gospel catches many. And the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the church, is likened to a net that is thrown into the sea and it gathers fish of every kind not selected but every kind and when it's full when it is full men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad so there will come a time when the net is full and there will come a time when these Fishermen, so to speak, who are likened in the analogy to angels, will sort the good fish from the bad fish. We have heard in the scriptures of sheep and goats, wheats and tares. Now we have good fish and we have bad fish. And the bad fish are simply tossed. Now notice something else. Here's the analogy. is the analogy of catching fish indiscriminately in a large net that will contain good and bad fish, and the kingdom of heaven is like that. Now, what are we to make of that? Verse 49 tells us, So it will be at the end of the age. 
Are the angels coming in now and, you know, after every worship service deciding who is good and who is bad? Are we meaning to unnecessarily scare people? Or what are we meant to do with this? No, this is the end of the age and this is something that is left to the angels. There are some people who think they can determine who are the good and the bad fish and this can be a very dangerous thing to do. It can be a very dangerous thing to do in the church. Why? Because hypocrites are usually very good at what they do. If there's one compliment I can pay a hypocrite is that they are good at what they do. But those who maybe aren't very good at what they do and they are genuine Christians can sometimes give off a feeling of, well, I don't know what's going on here. This person seems to be constantly struggling and so forth. The truth is we don't really know. There are sometimes cases where someone apostatizes and things happen and we say, yeah, my understanding is that they were once professing, they are no longer professing. But the point is that in the visible church, we don't really know. And I was making this point as we minister in different places, how we have to be very careful about how we speak and what we say, because what you might say in Grand Rapids, Michigan is going to be different than what you would say in Vancouver, Canada. I said, one of the joys about ministering in Canada is this, and there are many, but may I just say one, that people who go to church in Vancouver are under no societal pressure to go to church. If you don't wake up and come to church in the morning, is your uh, block of people with the houses you live going to be knocking on your door and rioting because they didn't see you go out with the wife and kids and have your nice clothes on and go to church? No, they don't care. Nobody cares. You're here because you want to be here. I said, I actually like that about ministering in Vancouver. Now, I'm not saying that means we're completely exempt. I mean, it might be some evil little child here who's here because his parents make him, but I don't know. It's a wonderful thing to minister in a place where you get the impression people want to be there. And more so even in this church. Because I could think of many reasons to not want to be here. I count them every night. So, on the one hand, I do appreciate that, and I don't want this parable to be a case now where, as that Puritan pastor in New England, when people were leaving the church, and some of you remember this, that as you would leave, he would shake hands and say to those who he deemed to not be elect, hello, friend. To those he deemed to be elect, hello, brother, hello, sister. So, when you leave this morning and I say, hello, friend, hello, brother, sister, Uh, That would be, uh, in my mind, excessive because we just don't know. That said, we mustn't miss the weightiness of the parable because the parable is saying there are still bad fish. And at the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. Now, I don't know if you've ever considered this before. But one day, it appears as though you're going to have direct and immediate dealings with an angel. You're going to come not only face to face with the living God and with his king, Jesus Christ, but angels who are ministering servants are going to come 
and they are going to have direct dealings with you on behalf of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there are angels that are going to take some people away into weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And there are other angels who are going to take others away into the light of the glory of God in the new heavens and the new earth. But nobody here will be untouched, as it were, by an angel. And what will these angels do? They will bring about God's judgment. The end of the age and Christ's return is a major theme in Scripture. It is not a minor theme. This is not something about which we say this is an obscure doctrine. This is something that we ought to be very careful about. It's not something whereby there can even really be any good-hearted debate. It's as clear as any doctrine in the Word of God. Anyone who wants to read honestly and openly, the Scriptures will find that the end-time judgment is perspicuous. It's clear. And the Apostles' Creed, which is the summary of teaching from especially the New Testament, but all of Scripture says that He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, earlier on in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, we're already given this clue. The Son of Man will send who? His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching and says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, namely Jesus Christ, by whom he has appointed and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Christ's resurrection is actually the greatest proof there will one day be a judgment. In Romans 2, Paul opens up, because of your hard and impenitent heart, speaking to Jewish people who are in the visible church, but are not actually believing in God's Messiah, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. To the Corinthians, for no one can lay a foundation other than that on which it is laid. 1 Corinthians 3.11, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that is the day of judgment, will disclose it and it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test everybody's work to see what they have done. Second Timothy 4.1 I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. And then we read Jude earlier and Jude is basically a commentary on this parable. Go back and read Jude. What is Jude about? It's actually about the visible church that there are wicked people, false teachers in the visible church. Bad fish. And there are good fish because if you look at the ending of Jude, God's glorious benediction of preservation of the godly, there are good fish. The point is this. God is going to come in judgment 
and he judges through his son Jesus Christ who sends his angels to do his will and they will separate from within the kingdom of God, the good fish and the bad fish. Will the rest of the world be judged? Absolutely. But that's not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is that within the kingdom of heaven, there are evil and there are good. You can't really make sense of it unless you adopt that interpretation. Remember you get to Matthew chapter 25? What happens in Matthew 25? Well, if you read from verse 31 onwards, which you can do later, you will find out that there are people who believed themselves to be in the kingdom of God. And they will say, where did I see you thirsty? Where did I see you hungry? They will protest loudly of their righteousness. And Christ will say, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. I never knew you. And they will go to the place of weeping and wailing, of gnashing of teeth, to the place of outer darkness, to the place where their worm does not die. I wish I believed in Christ's teaching and the apostles' teaching and the prophets' teaching on hell and judgment more than I do. I had Desiring God recently asked me to write an article on hell. I don't know how many people they asked before me to write this article, or maybe they thought, oh, we know just the guy who will write on this topic. He lives in Canada. <laughs> and you actually do a study on the teaching of judgment in hell, and I'm convicted by the fact that if I really believed it, not just intellectually, not just theologically, not just because I'm orthodox, not just because I've studied enough of church history to know that it's clearly there, but if I really believed it in terms of what Jesus is saying here, how much more would I be concerned to sow little seeds so that people may escape the judgment that is to come? And you cannot really read any book of the Bible, especially the New Testament, without being confronted with this reality. You can't. I uh, went with my son a few weeks ago to a Western Michigan, and we got to this point in the tour, towards the end of the tour, where the head coach, soccer coach, takes us up to a room, and he shows us the video stuff that they do, and it has all these files and stats on players and I was really taken by this because back in the day when out without the robots and videos and all the stats and analysis, you know, a player could say, hey, you know, coach, you're not really being fair to me. And it was very subjective, you know, it was like, oh, this coach likes him because he's just his favorite and all that. And you didn't really have any objective grounds except coach's decision and the coach says you know what that's basically been removed in a certain sense from coaching now parents can't even write and complain and he explained why he says he brought up a player and looked at his stats and this isn't how many goals and assists I mean that's easy how many times did this player pass backwards how many times did this player pass forwards how many times did this player pass in the final zone of the field or the back zone? How many passes were over 20 yards? How many passes were under 10? How many times did he lose the ball? How many times did he regain the ball? How many headers did he win in against opposition duels? 
And you see stat after stat after stat after stat after stat. And I thought to myself, if a computer can do this with a soccer player, what is God going to do with me and you? Oh, Lord, I've done this. I've done that. And you protest. And God can bring up on the screen of your entire life every single misdemeanor, every omission of sin, not just every commission of sin, and you will be left silenced. And that's why, and that is why the Reformation was so important. That is why the Roman Catholic theologian Robert Bellarmine said the greatest Protestant heresy is assurance. Because the Reformation gave assurance to doubting Christians by saying, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be covered in His righteousness and be able to stand at that final day. Whereas Roman Catholics were being led to believe they needed to do all these things in order to maybe stand a chance. And even when they died, they were going to go into a place where they better make sure they've got rich relatives to get them out of purgatory. You stand no chance against God on your own. You are undone unless you believe in Jesus Christ. And here's the glory of the Gospel. When God gives to you Jesus Christ, He not only removes your sins and covers you in the righteousness of Christ, He also unnecessarily gives you His Spirit. And that is the great distinction between the good fish and the bad fish. It's not will you sing the final hymn. It's not will you give money to the offering whenever you feel led. It's not will you show up to church. Though these things can be important and signs of something that is good. The real difference between the good and the bad fish is found in one reality and one reality alone. And do you know what that is? It is the fruit of the Spirit. Anyone who does not possess the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. I went away to South Africa with my father. I've been ministering to him for many years. And... This was a bit different, this trip. I thought he was just along for the good food and the cheap wine. But I preached the parable of the two sons, and I could tell he was more affected than he'd ever been. He actually took the Lord's Supper after, and he hasn't been baptized, but I'm going to just roll with this right now. I'm Presbyterian to a point. <laughs> and I stayed with my dad and a friend and then a pastor who had been so instrumental in my life who I dedicated Pilgrim's Regress to, Lee Robinson, who gave me my first chance of preaching. And he was in the house and he's a master. He's one of those guys that's gentle and soft. And one night he had a long, powerful, intense conversation with my dad about becoming a Christian. And I'm not the type to get too carried away, but I'm also praying that I don't understate what might have happened. Because a prophet's without honor in his own family. And so you usually need someone else to speak to someone you love about the things of the gospel. But you know what the real issue is going to be? Whether it's my dad, whether it's me, whether it's you, 
The real issue is going to be, will our love for Christ and the forgiveness of sins be so real that it is necessarily accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit where there's going to be kindness, where there's going to be gentleness and faithfulness and joy and love and peace. Because as I read the text here, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. The evil from the righteous. And so as we sit here Today, should you be at church? Yes. Should you sing the final hymn? Yes. Should you, as you have vowed, contribute to the work of the church? Yes. But before all of those things can be pleasing to God, you must be in Christ. And when you are in Christ, you must ask that His Spirit will transform your heart from the inside out so that when the angels come, you are not going to be led away into the place of darkness, outer darkness. You're not going to be led away into the place where everyone is crying out for mercy and blaspheming God in their hatred of Him. You're not going to be taken to the place where your worm never dies. You're not going to be taken to the place where everybody hates everyone in that place, but rather an angel is going to come and take you on behalf of Christ into the place where instead of weeping and wailing, there will be singing and rejoicing. Instead of darkness, there will be light. Instead of hatred of everyone in your sight, there will be love of everyone in your sight because... You have loved Christ. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that You will awaken us to the great reality that in the kingdom of heaven to which we belong, there must be a belonging to Christ. And pray that we may have that union with Him that can never separate us from the love of God. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.